Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Anam Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm a writer with an interest in the intimate. We talk to guests to help us understand the relationship we have with our bodies when it comes to sex and intimacy. It's a whole new kind of sex education for your owl... Careful. ...pleasure. In this episode, we interview Tom Glitter slash Crystal Rasmussen. They are a quintuple threat. Writer, actor, singer, presenter, and most importantly, professional Celine Dion stan. In their own words, a global phenomenon. Crystal is the editor of Cause and Effect magazine. They are part of the seriously good drag band, Denim, and make one half of the queer performance duo, ACM. You can see Crystal perform their own show at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival this year and catch them on the telly in Dragony Aunts on Comedy Central. We talked to Crystal about the book they published this year, Diary of a Drag Queen, a warm, funny, shocking, romantically unromantic book documenting their return from New York to London via Lancaster. It's an honest and vulnerable story of acceptance. It was a hot day in London when we recorded this, so you may hear a bit of Whitechapel life go by as we cracked open the windows a bit for some air. Do be aware that this episode goes to some darker places and there is mention of homophobia and hate crime. But we hope you enjoy. Really, I I was sort of very keen to show that queer people and gay people and whatever people are more than just sex because often we're really, really reduced to that. So, like, really it was about showing... I think a lot of people know the face of drag really well, but I don't think people really know like the heart of drag very well because we're so used to watching it in like a really capitalist competitive way on things like RuPaul's Drag Race. Or you're used to sort of your old school iconic still, but like acidic, like bitchy queens. And really I think what was important to me was to, was to show like how much color and, and richness there is and boringness there is in a life that's so often treated like just a face as a facade kind of thing. I think originally Cristal was incredibly detached from me and and when I was sort of building her unknowingly in my bedroom in Lancaster, she was always all the things that I could absolutely never be. So she was always like incredibly rich, incredibly American, like old money American, incredibly sexually free, like whip smart, glamorous, like a muse, which is a problematic term I know, but like many of these things that I thought back then that I would never be able to be. So then for about 10 years, that's how she existed. It was like, I am like a messy, flabby, northern, spotty person who is very confused about my gender, but I was a boy. And then I would push into Crystal and just be able to literally, and you are, you are. The moment you, the moment I used to do that and be her, it was like, I, I am literally everything I've ever wanted to be in this moment. Then you go back to your day-to-day life and realize you're over time, many things you want to be there too, like when I'm dressed like I am right now, which is in non-crystal clothes. But I think slowly then realising that all this stuff that you've been worried about is actually just fake, 
and you surround yourself with other people who believe that too, then Crystal and Tom exist now far more interchangeably. Mm. I mean, it's sort of like realizing that <clears throat> everything's false in a structure. So like there's no ultimate truth because nothing is real because like gender is a construct and, and sexuality and sex is a construct and, and biology is a construct and language is a construct and everything's a construct. So once you think yourself out of all of that, you're quite like, oh my God, nothing exists so I can be anything. And so then coming out as non-binary oddly is quite structural because you're oddly saying there's a word for what I am. But, you know, you do what you can in a system that's, that fails us all. I don't know, it's just a constant work in progress and there is never a moment when I'm like, this is me, Mm-mm. which is confusing. But I, don't, I think nobody has that, right? Mm-hmm. Unless you're just sort of blinkered to the fact that these things exist and that's wonderful if, if that's who you are. But if you're someone who's sort of constantly been torn up about things, maybe the best realization is to realize that there's no end point. There's no such thing as an, as a, there's no such thing as a, a whole. I suppose I wonder how much drag has infiltrated your daily life. Mm. Do you feel pressure to perform as Cristal in your daily life? Do people want you for, for her? In terms of my day-to-day life, no, only because I'm more antisocial now, only because like I went through this wild time of being like, I want to be everyone's best friend. I want everyone when they meet me to think I'm like brilliant and funny and lovely. And I was like obsessed with socializing in probably quite an unhealthy way. And, and I maybe now have like 10 very close friends. So maybe less, I feel like I'm performing less in my life now in a good way because of being a bit more boundaried. Is Cristal non-binary? No, she's she. Yeah. Cause I think it's, I don't know. I just, I think the label of he is so awful cause yeah. I hate men. Most men, if not every single one. Um, I'm kidding, but pretty much all of them. Um, the other day I watched the women's football and I was like, oh my God, it turns out I don't hate football. I just hate men. I say it was a tweet. I, I'm stealing that from a brilliant tweet that I saw, but I want it. In terms of us two, we exist much more together because I'm not needing to be like, oh my God, I want to like be a completely different person. I'm actually really like lucky now. You're sort of living the fantasy in some respects. In some respects, yeah. yeah. And I get to fucking be a drag queen and like Love. get lived for. I get yeah. to bring her out into the world. I think quite from the book. Um, being non-binary offered a place to depart the pains of maleness and masculinity and look at my body penis included and see it first as mine and not as society's. I don't see my hair as man, my fatty boobs as woman. I don't see my small feet as female and my cock and bollocks as a big lumbering justification for structural dominance. My body is just mine. It belongs to me. My penis is femme. My penis is mask. My penis is an alien. It's soft, a flower. It's hard. It's anything I wish it to be. It's a sight for pleasure. Pleasure that I deserve, that I am learning to receive. I don't have to make my pleasure smaller for someone else's to be bigger. That's a really nice part. I mean, I think that sums it up, really. Yeah. I had to have a fight with my editors to get that, piece, that bit in there. Mm. There was a lot, there was bits about incest in there, like my desire to fuck my Uncle Cole. And they were like, you really can't do that. And I said, if I was some like upper middle class, very artistic literary person writing like an ode to like, you know, sort of like father and son homo, like homoeroticism, you would think I was a genius, but you can't cope with like, some confused person working out their desire and mapping onto their freaky, iconic, weird uncle. <laughs> or dog. Or dog. <laughs> yes. That was a mood. Because I didn't write what actually happened in there. Which, 
I was watching EastEnders, which I'm actually going to be on on Friday. How oh, glad. I know the first ever Friday episode. Oh, I Stunning. I know you can do anything. And honestly, nothing makes mum proud like being on EastEnders. <laughs> but like, I was watching EastEnders and I was watching this kiss happen. And it was like very loving kiss. And I just was 10 or 11, I think. And I remember being like, oh, that's what people in love do. And so I tried to kiss my mum like that, like full on make out with my mum. Because I just thought that's what you did. Anyway, obviously, oh, I remember it now. And like, it's a, it's deeply bleak. But like, she like pushed me off, not pushed me off, but she like pulled me away and was like, what are you doing? I was like, I just thought that's what you did when you love someone. And she was like, no, like, you know, there's different types of kiss, for, you know, whatever. Anyway, I remember going to bed feeling like a deep sense of rejection, not really understanding what she'd said. And then the next day I was like, I know who won't reject me, my dog. And then I lay on the floor while my dog licked the inside of my mouth out. My God. We're not necessarily we can recommend this. And I think it is illegal in this country. So. It is illegal, I think. My but, poor dog. But, but when you talk about a sort of unusual arousal and experimentation, that kind of stuff, one thing that really stuck out for me, which I loved, was about the commitment erection. Where you have this erection when someone just talks about the fact that they want to be committed to you. Right. And I have really hurt so I so I read a book by Naomi Wolf called vagina mm. biography there was this whole section about vaginal or vaginal about a vaginal throbbing which I have experienced mm. uh, but uh, really weird things like anyone who says let's have a Chinese takeout I get a vaginal throb like, oh god love a Chinese takeout but I I feel like that kind of response in your body that's sort of sexual even when it's not necessarily about sex mm. is uh, is interesting the mm. way you d d explore that and I haven't heard anyone else talk about that I mean the vaginal throb for Naomi Wolf that sounds similar in a way yeah because I also get I get erections when I think about like performing on the pyramid stage for example mm. and my flatmate actually she masturbates over that maybe three times a week like stepping out onto the pyramid stage, so then that's when I come. I'm quite like, yes. It's a real sort of pleasure release that you, some people get from food, some people get from sex, some people get from drugs. You, you know, your body is programmed the way it is. And actually sometimes, it's not actually the wires are crossed, but they are triggered mm. by lots of different things. But I think that thing about sex being a, a thing in a box mm. is um, sort of blown apart in the book as well, because you talk about um, sort of sensuality and pleasure with friends. And mm. we're not just talking about full on sex, but you talk about you and your friend. You and the one who masturbates with masturbating together, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I loved that. I love that so much. Mm. It blew completely apart my idea of friendship and sensuality and how mm. close you can be mm. to a friend that's pushing that boundaries of sexual mm. into sensual. You know, I know some people that are very like laissez-faire about having sex with their friends. And I think that's a really great way to be. But I guess, yeah, pleasure as an idea. I guess we were going through a thing back then about the period of the book that I'm writing about where we were all discovering our queerness as a group of people and all of us being aware of how much pleasure the world denies everyone all the time. Do you know what I mean? Because A, through violence, but B, through like what we talk about and, and what's important. And obviously I think things are changing and people are talking more and more about pleasure. But I think back then it was like, hang on, there's a whole world of pleasure we could be experiencing. And like say that in the book, when I talk about masturbating by some bins with Hattie at Glastonbury looking up as the, as the sun comes up, that is like a, it's deeply pleasurable feeling, but it's not necessarily like you say, sexual. It's not even necessarily sensual. Mm -hmm. It's more like experiential, mm -hmm. like 
it's it's it feels wider than sex in a way which is nice it's not just about sort of the act of sex it's about everything around you maybe and we were high so obviously you know you do some weird <laughs> shit there but like that's the goes back to that thing i was talking about earlier about like, being like oh um, what's the value in me thinking sex is this one thing could sex not just be like so many things that involve pleasure so if food can be sensual if all of these things can actually be sensual well why not i mean well, it, it is about us defining it in narrow bandwidth mm. um, and experience about it, well thinking about it in a more perhaps enlightened perhaps less judgmental way mm. I mean certainly that's what your book has brought to me um, I mean there are two other little bits that I want to, which are both sort of relate to your family you talk about how it's been a real journey to get you from rather you know, d- difficult time to chatting about fisting in your mm. lounge and that seemed quite extraordinary I, mean, I think in most families that would be quite mm. challenging I'm thinking about to my Asian family sat around you know Things like this would be banded around going, oh, oh those gays, they're paedophiles, they're this, that and the other. And I have spent, I think, the last 20 years being an out gay man to them mm. um, and living probably a relatively sort of <laughs> sadly sainted life in some ways. Because, it, it, you know, I've not really pushed any boundaries, I've not really done anything particularly challenging. But by being myself, and, it all, and so my, my cousin came up to me at a party the other day and said, actually, you're the reason that I no longer think that gay people are pedophiles things and for me that is an important thing mm. i think that's wonderful i think this exposure is for anyone is is really what changes people's minds i think obviously you have naturally like i have friends whose parents are like of course you're gay we knew we wanted a gay son and it's quite like fuck you guy but like <laughs> i think the first step's definitely exposure definitely and that's basically a similar journey to what i had with my parents and obviously i'm i don't want to assume but i guess northern working class white people culturally different but actually holding similar views which are mm-hmm. gay people are pedophiles gay people are probably going to die of AIDS related, related illnesses but with my mum there was nothing to lose at a point I think with me and her it got very bad between us it was actually not a slow process it was many maybe six years of very bad stuff and then one day when something bad had happened and I was like this is my red line now you've crossed it I will either be in your life and you accept me for everything I am or I just won't ever speak to you ever again and you're making a choice right now. And obviously that wouldn't have happened really, but she like switched a a button overnight and eventually we started to reveal things to each other. She turns out she used to be a fucking sex therapist and then I was like, what the fuck were you doing? Wow. Like a sex counsellor. But like, my God. So you learn these things about your mum. And then then with her, because she's a bit cheeky, you like like slowly tease things and be like, I think it's about what's normal, like what's normal, inverted commas, my siblings would be like, oh, the idea of mom and dad having sex. And I'd always be like, I love the idea of mom and dad having sex because thank God they are. Because who, do any of you want to be 60 and like not having an orgasm? Like, come on. And then they would, all, they would always be like, yeah, I guess you're right. Like, not that that's how my siblings talk, <laughs> but like in that moment. And so get, I guess because I was forced to be different by being gay by the world, I always had a different view on sex. And I always had a different view on what should be acceptable. And I think it should all, all be acceptable. So then I would just slowly put these things in to conversations and see what would challenge my mum and what wouldn't. So it's about exposure. Perhaps I've taken it just slightly further, but perhaps that's because I'm aware how lucky I am that I have that. I'm aware that a lot of my queer friends, they don't have any ties to their family and that's ridiculous. And that's like absolutely their family's issue and it's absurd and society's issue. I, it makes me so upset. And, and sometimes it's nice. Sometimes we'll be on the phone and uh, we'll have like a proper check-in Rarely, because in my experience, older northern women don't like to talk about their emotions. Life for my mum has been very hard and being over-emotional hasn't got her anywhere. So I think she's like very stern, very down the line, very strong, because you have to be. And she 
sometimes we check in and I will ask her if her and my dad are having sex and if she's getting enough pleasure and stuff like that and talk about her body and how beautiful I think she is and she doesn't need to wear beauty, all this stuff. And actually, how nice is that? Because I don't think she has anyone else in her life who would ask her if she was having orgasms, basically. So, cheers, Mum. That's yeah. so lovely. No, it is lovely. It's quite nice, yeah. <laughs> and, but having talked about your mother, I really love the, your relationship with your father. You, know, you can't no. entertain the idea of you painting his nails no. in that beautiful black crackle varnish because actually, oh no, men like me don't behave like that no. or can't be seen to behave like that. And that made me think about, one, how delightful that was that you went home and painted his nails anyway mm. and that he loved it, but the fact that he took it off again immediately. And then I thought about the sense of details and what, how we've recognised each other for years that actually it is the small stuff that allows us to recognise other people. Because gay men have had their hankies. Mm. Love. love. Sorry, I, I, I get sweaty. Sure. I get, no, I, I love it. So, um, what does it mean, the other one? Um, piss. Love, give it what to do you me. Mean? What do you mean? Piss play, yellow. The hanky code is yeah, really so famous. I, I, I don't have any. I don't have any fetishes, but I've just got a yellow hanky, which means piss, and it's fine. So, specialist interest is sexual function, so I'm fully on brand. It's the ideal, actually. And if you put it in a certain pocket, it means you'll give or receive, which I love oh, for this coded world. That's it's like a parallel world that unless you're exposed to or aware right. of, you might miss. I always wonder what that is for heterosexuals. What the coding is? Yeah, like what coding do you have? Like. You know. But don't you think that because heterosexual culture has been the norm for so long, <laughs> that actually the, the, there is a lack of coding because yeah, it's no taken as granted, as... there was no need to, for secret messages? I'm constantly finding myself trying to work out what straight culture is. Sorry to straight people, but like, what is straight culture? What is it? Because mm. culture can't come from privilege, I don't think. Culture mm. comes from arguably resistance, right? So like, what is straight culture? All bar one, that's the only thing I can think of. <laughs> what is it? So, like, actually, yeah, we're great. Sorry. <laughs> but also, there is many things that straight culture can be if you're willing to look outside of, like you say, what's preconceived and accepted. It was like shocking at the beginning, some of the things you're saying about the role that you felt you inhabited with being the femme persona, mm. where you would always be on the receiving end of sex. Um, and therefore, you know, Uranus was a site for potential pleasure, but it didn't sound like it felt like it to you. Mm. Yeah, it's sort of funny what you realise with hindsight, isn't it? Kind of, I, I've sort of been thinking a lot recently about how often in those really formative sexual years for me, I like really existed in like a consent grey area, I think. And I think that I was dealing with like a lot of internalised shame, fat phobia, probably internalised misogyny because I was like very feminine and I was punished massively for that. So it's homophobia or arguably trans misogyny, whatever you'd want to call it. You seem to be actively enjoying mm. and more joyful of your body and finding pleasure in that body. Mm. I think that is interlocked with like reading about fatness. Roxane Gay, for example, her, her book Hunger is, was a real informant for me, like just in terms of writing about body and also coming out as non-binary and excavating a lot of shame from inside me because I think I was actively seeking out sexual situations very much based in shame and very much for the story because I really got this thing into my head when I was perhaps from between the ages of 18 to 25 where I was like if I do the most extreme thing then I tell the story about it evidently I feel no shame and I'm not marked by these things so I would like get pissed in by five daddies you know what I mean and really feel like I was enjoying it often leaving feeling quite you know intense discomfort with myself or whatever and also like full of piss and feeling like a really complicated mix of 
in real intense pleasure. But I think that pleasure deriving from a place of feeling like I deserved intense punishment, I think. Mm. And so it, I, it's very, very different from BDSM and I don't want to cross the world at all because I actually don't understand much about that world. But like, I think over time, reading about my fat body, meeting other femme people, meeting other non-binary people, realizing I'm not deserving of being treated badly. That was like the biggest shift. I think in the book I talk about being attacked and it was just down the road from here, outside oh. the front door. And I... And that was like, it took a long time, but it was a huge sort of like under the earth within me shift of slowly being like, hang on, I've been treating my body and myself quite badly for all these years, even though people would think I was probably like getting my life for myself. Cause I'd be like, you know, I got shot on last night. Yes. And everyone would be like, oh my God, you're so crazy. And I'd be like, yes, I am. But then when I sort of shape shifted inside, I slowly realized the things that I really deserved and I didn't. And I think after being violently attacked like that in quite an extreme way, I really remember feeling like I do not deserve that. And I, I can see that very clearly, no matter what I am, I don't deserve that. And then realizing the way I've been treating my body is a kind of similar violence. It's all of that stuff internalized. Am I making sense? Yeah, yeah you are. And so then realizing I don't deserve to treat myself that way. That was the biggest sort of shift in shame for me. Mm. And that was the biggest shift in my body and my pleasure. So. I then realized I deserved pleasure. I then re- I wasn't sort of really put off by my sort of erect penis. And yeah, and I left the coding of like top or bottom, those things that sort of actually to me now seem really unhelpful. Do you know th- what I mean? Yeah, I th- think it's interesting that you reject those sorts of uh, labels really. Mm. Um, because I-, I wonder if some of the kind of the self-violence was also about having this pleasure in inverted commas as anecdotal mm. for other people, painting a picture of yourself in the world as opposed to actually it being about one's own pleasure, pleasure in the moment. And I say that because I, when I was reading the book, I found it very relatable actually. Good. Growing up as sort of a, a quite a, a sexually promiscuous girl, I felt like, God, I re- really, I feel this, I hear this. Mm. And that returned to you thinking about the body and how you feel mm. and, and existing, living within this shell that we've been born in and knowing and working out what feels good and what doesn't feel good and how we want to use it. It feels pretty radical, actually. Yeah. In a way, to when you do that for yourself, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, because more, it's about gaining awareness as well, because I, I, there's so many things I'm aware of now that I wasn't when I was having that sex. But what what we you know we were talking about before we started recording, which is like performance and pleasure, it's so interesting. Then they're like, all of that sex for me was like probably a performance, I think, in a way. And it was then you're living in such strange consent boundaries because I just don't know if I knew I knew what the terminology of consent meant, like yes, no, and if someone was not consenting and someone was. But like, it's so it's just so strange making choices not really for you ever always making choices either to like tell the world and for the other person in the room you know I had I sat with this guy for a while who like I don't think I put I put it in the book maybe I did but who liked to fuck me on broken glass and it was so extreme that was the only blood play I've ever done and it was so extreme and I really didn't derive any pleasure from it but what I did derive pleasure from was being like made to feel worthless And I think that's what I thought about myself at the time as well. And I don't know if I'd do that anymore. Or maybe if I did do that now, I would feel great about it because I would know my worth and be choosing to do it. I don't know. I always think it's because I'm very big and when I'm dressed in a very feminine way, often men can't compute the like 
the, the, the sort of distance between what I'm supposed to be and what I am, you know, so they like assert their masculinity over me by calling me a faggot or throwing a Diet Coke at me because I'm bigger than them, but I'm evidently weaker than them, right? And they're quite like, oh my God, it doesn't compute. But it's, now It's I like do. a chimpanzee str a power struggle, isn't it? It's basically like I'm showing my social position as dominant to you. Yeah. I wonder yeah. what that makes me in, in, the, in that jungle analogy, because when, <laughs> when I first saw you, I remember it very specifically. Mood. Yeah. It was, I was doing my show, Good Girl. It was the very first run of it at the Edinburgh Fringe. I was walking down Cowgate about to do one of my first performances. So, you know, a lot of trips to the toilet, very, yeah, very anxious. Baby. And here were these drag queens walking down the street towards me, headed up by this extraordinary Amazonian you, with your beard, beard. beautifully encrusted with like these diamonds everywhere. Well, it was your glitter yeah. everywhere. But I had never seen anything like it and I stopped dead in my tracks. And I went, who is that? As oh God, you all that. walked past. See, and that's I, nice. <laughs> yeah. I thought, now I, I want part of that world. <laughs> oh my god, It is quite an amazing world. Yeah. In many ways, yeah. yeah. Joyful. You talk about it's that drag is a place to express your femininity as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you feel that that is, again, something that you're, you're doing more in daily life anyway, rather than purely in Performatively. drag? Performatively. Mm. Mm, way less now, mm. I think. I think back way back when I was much more feminine. I think since I got attacked, I dressed differently. Something I'm not quite healed from, I think. Weirdly, once every six months, I will have a full on, like, like I was walking through, I'm, and I'm not, very, I'm not a very emotional person. And I was walking through Dean Street, must have been in January this year. And all of a sudden, I don't know what it was. I just, I've never done this before. I fell to the floor and just was heaving with sobs and had to be like helped to the side. And I wasn't even thinking about it. I think I was just thinking about a song that I used to listen to, I don't know. And then I went to see Celine Dion two years ago. No, a year ago, and it was a year after the attack. Whatever, I don't remember the timelines because I'm terrible at, at diet keeping diaries. I mean, lol, wrote one. <laughs> like, um, <clears throat> but like, um, keeping times in my head. Yeah. But I, I, for, and I was exhausted that day, and I loved Celine Dion, and for an hour of the, of the start of the concert, I was like, I was inconsolable with tears. And I'm, I don't cry ever, I don't cry at anything really, not anymore, I think I, spent all my tears on stupid boys and stupid homophobes, but like, I wept inconsolably about that attack. So I've not really healed from it, but I very much changed the way I am in public, which makes me sad because it feels like they've won. But also I'm quite like, well, fuck it. Like visibility and safety are a constant toss up. I'd rather be safe and write another book. I'd rather be safe and get to go on stage. And do you think that's acceptance or resignedness? You know what? I or couldn't resignation, say. Sorry, resignation. No. I, it's a really good question. I think it's, I'd like to think, I would love to think it was acceptance, but I think it's halfway between probably. I think, and that's okay. I, I have a really good friend, Rose Wood, who's an amazing, very much sort of, I think I would guess 60, although she'd hate that I was guessing her age. Um, <laughs> she's an amazing trans performer who, who basically is the reason the box exists because she's just, no one can do what Rose does. And she does these amazing things where she sort of like, shits out a copy of Vogue or she like, you know, stables her, her testicles to her, to her abdomen and does a lot of incredible work with gender and bodies and fluids. She's amazing. But she once said to me that she was transitioning and she didn't want to have facial feminization surgery, but she kept getting attacked in the street. And her friends were like, you need to be here to like deliver your amazing gifts and messages. Not that I'm saying I have them, but she does. She was, and so that she ended up being like choosing safety and being able to then spread her message in the way she wants to. And I think it's about like, in terms of who gets to, 
who deserves to have those parts of you? I just don't know if the people that are going to be horrible to people like me and people like us, if they deserve to get those bits of you anyway. So like maybe it's a cop out, but maybe about three years ago, I made a turning point in my mind to be like, I don't want to spend all my energy fighting against people who hate me. What I want to do instead is provide work to nourish people who need it like me. And I've had messages from um, like the most moving messages from like 13 year old Northern queers who've read, who like got a hold of the book against their mum's will and have like read it three times and have like, you know, frankly, I'd rather save a queer life than change a straight life. If I'm basically love not war. It is, is, (laughs) in a way it is mate, love not war because, but to those making war, not in like the awful governmental sense, Mm, mm. but to those making war on big, big systems, like power to you. And I have, I wish I had the energy to do that, but I just don't. Mm. I think there's a quote from the book. Um, when I dress up, I feel authentic. Like I've really questioned my beliefs and this is the result. I take ownership of the could be wreckage of my body after it's dodged the insults of countless people and cover it in the things that tell people who I am in the way I want to say it. Mm. I thought that was beautiful. Oh, thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's Pride Month right now, and oh my god, it's just I was I was writing something this morning about like exa- deep exhaustion from being told to feel proud all the time. Okay. Does it feel very um, infiltrated by um, straight culture now? Pride feels very corporatized, which is a really obvious thing to say. But like, what I guess it, I've really noticed here by being aware of it is like looking around, being like, the DLR is rainbow. Like that. Also, the irony, like the DLR, I've had like three really violent attacks on the DLR. Not one time did anyone on the DLR help me out or feel pride for me. That's and that's the point. It's like being told constantly that these things are for you and they're so not for you. I don't know a single gay person who's buying queer person who's buying any of the shit these people are selling, who would go into Wagamama and be like, I'll choose to sit on the rainbow seat. So that does feel like it's for straight people to almost virtue signal like how good they are. How will you be celebrating Pride? I'm gonna go because my boyfriend's walking being with an HIV charity and actually that's where Pride's important. Last year at Pride was the first time in five years my boyfriend and I have ever held hands in the street, ever. Which like, makes me want to burst into tears. Because I'm not here to fight for the fucking ability to hold hands in the street like people are dying. You know, trans women of colour are dying. Their life expectancy is 35 in America. Like, I'm not here to fight for that. But it's a like, minute thing that absolutely infuriates me when I see like a straight couple like going at it on the tube and no one looking. And then I will be wearing like 
a lilac jacket and everyone will look at me. And it's like, how does this exist? How has this happened? The weird how that someone else's gaze can be an exhausting act. So even though you are a passive recipient of something else, you still feel worn down. Not you as in you, but... See, I feel that like as a woman as well. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You still are damaged by it or um, exhausted by it. Um, or forced to be, forced to perform it as well. That's yes. really interesting, mm. Marie performance. And it's weird that there's that, that such pleasure of you standing up there and being on a stage and being authentic yourself and being looked at as Cristal. Mm. And then sometimes walking down the street as Tom and Cristal, but mm. more visibly Tom. And the judgment that can... In Incur. I don't know, I just, I don't know. Sorry, it really blows my mind, this stuff. It's really sort of, I'm, yeah. I just, I get really emotional about visibility because people think it's the cure for everything and actually it's the thing that's caused me the most pain in my life. So like, yeah, I don't know. It's sort of wild to think that that is, you know, like, oh my God, amazing. Like, that's so great that there's this queer person on TV and it is great and it feels great to see that. But it doesn't change, it changes how maybe we feel. But the fact of the matter is how much that changes on the ground is... On the I'm talking like on this when you're walking on the street. Feels like we've got to be absolutely um, aware that we ought not to be blinded by the co-option of these very um, awakened, I'm supposed to woke, mm. awakened um, viewpoints about you know this co-option of these positive buzzwords that we're always using and being sold off as with with these big corporations like the rainbow all over Oasis and all. all or like this, what is what a feminist looks like? Abs yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Those all of those Topshop T-shirts and that kind of thing. Sometimes I'm like, I just want to be left alone. Actually, I do. I just want to be left alone. You know, I was talking with my friend Amru Arkadi this morning on the phone, and we were talking about. Amri was like, much like a lot of my female friends say, being told to smile on the street's exhausting. That's how pride can feel. Like, feel proud, feel proud. I, I don't think anyone who, I don't know if I know what that feels like. But I feel proud when I'm like at home and asked not to change who I am. The moment I leave my door, I feel many things. Less and less shame now, but that isn't, that's not the same as pride. Less shame is not the same as pride, I don't think. Less shame is like years of work. And pride is something, I don't know what it means, because to feel proud to me would, I don't know what it means, really. Anyway, I've gone, taken us in no, quite a strange no, direction. That's, that's, so. but, it's, but it's also a view that we don't hear. That's what we want to talk about. We want to talk about things, well, we want to have a real conversation with people about their lives mm. and about how they actually feel. And sometimes your feelings are not as homogeneously experienced mm. as people think they are. Mm. So I'm going to go out on Saturday and I am going to be really proud because it's taken me a long journey to get to the yeah. place where I'm really comfortable with who I am. And now, fucking, I live for that as well. That's the thing. I'm moaning about this and then I'm like, not, you know no, what? No, you go, no, I mean it. You go out. That makes me want to cry as well. Uh, but the issue is I am still not necessarily dressing as femme as sometimes I want to dress. I remember times where I was wearing a sari at school um, at because I, I thought, you know, why should I wear what my mum wears? I love my mum, love her clothes. I like wearing them. I was wearing a, a topaz diamante bracelet when I was a doctor on the wards with you know, lilac flares and cowboy boots. I mean, a dreadful taste, obviously. No, beautiful. Um, That's but, iconic for Gucci. But with, with, with a white coat. But, you know, <laughs> and then I became more muted because I was tired of the looks. I was mm. tired of the judgment. And I just got so exhausted by it. I became muted. Mm. And now finally I've got to a place where I feel much more authentically myself. I'm working on this other book about marriage and about what it means and whether it's whether there's any point to it. 
And something that I've been finding so interesting is interviewing a lot of people who are in open and polyamorous marriages and sort of how you negotiate the both, like commitment to one with a sexual openness to many or whatever. And what has been interesting, I think perhaps isn't given away by the name and the term openness is that you have to have like many rules to survive openness, I think, in a relationship. Because really, I think care, which is what a relationship is in my eyes, maybe sort of whether that's like making someone dinner or like washing their clothes or like, you know, giving them a great orgasm. That's care to me. And then the rules that you make in terms of openness, they have to come from a caring place, right? There's really one rule in a monogamous relationship, which is don't fuck anyone else when it comes to this. But in an open relationship, I know people who have things like, I once interviewed this kink porn director in LA who said that he was, he was married and he was allowed, they were allowed to have sex with anyone else they wanted, whoever it was, friends, family members of the other person, as long as it was outside of their postcode, which I found so specific. But it worked for them. Oh. Kind of worked for them. Now they're divorced, so didn't work that well. <laughs> but like, you know, or I know other people who are allowed to have sex with anyone. I know other people who are like allowed to have sex with like someone if the other person's out of the country or you're not allowed to do it in the same bed. And when I did it in the past, our rules were things like no sex with someone more than once, no like romantic connection allowed to be formed, no sex with friends, no sex with like friends of the other person. So things like that. And I also think there's something really exciting in terms of openness about seeing your partner as sexually desired by someone else. Perhaps like, is that jealousy or is that just just repositioning them as someone who could be sexual to someone other than you? And I think that can in like, ignite a sexual joy inside you. I won't say which partner, but one of the partners I've been with, he and I loved going to group sex things together. So we would never have sex apart, but we would like, often when we'd like go abroad, we'd end up sucking 30 dicks and getting cummed in loads. And that was really worked for us because it allowed us to see each other. But you know what I mean? So it's just, I think whatever rules work for you, but I don't think be ashamed by the rules that you have. But I think if you're going to go open, there probably has to be some rules. I think it's pretty hard work, I imagine. I get, I, you know, kind of maybe like a sick way, but like, I quite love the idea of being like that involved in someone else's body. Yeah. That's so I, what you, when you describe in the book about felching, mm. I didn't know 100% what, I thought I knew what felching was and I, I, I didn't turn down. Mm. And you say like, yeah, it could sound gross, but there is nothing quite like the experience of sort of not knowing where you end and they begin. I'm yeah. paraphrasing here. But the idea of the exchange <laughs> of fluids, mm. of having the fluids of somebody in you, yeah. fluids that parts of them that you're not sort of meant to, meant to in inverted commas, have in mm. you. And that exchange is something very, I'm like, can I say primal almost Base, about yeah. it? And, and that's kind of exciting actually, isn't it? Because it's almost to, taboo, but it's also mm. no judgment. I wrote this really intense essay about piss play for this magazine and my mum read it. <laughs> and that was a shock, she was shocked by that because I wrote about wanting to drink the contents of someone's kidneys and how that was like such an erotic thought for me. The idea of like being able to feel, being able to have something that was fully in, like in someone else's blood and someone else's stomach and someone else's intestines also inside yours. I think it's kind of amazing. Although the thing about swallowing, so you know, if you, someone ejaculates and you swallow, um, that, so in my head, I, I become very sort of biological about it because you know, you're gonna digest it, it's gonna turn into um, amino acids, you're gonna absorb it into your body and you will build Made your of body cum. 
of well, seriously, <laughs> I, I've not swallowed enough to I think of it made to made to be made of cum. I have. It's all cum. You're very well built. I know exactly. Gorgeous. So I got my shiny skin as a gorgeous. I wondered if it was connected to the idea of being non-binary, or I might be wrong about this. The idea of not being necessarily. I might get this wrong, but Go for it, um, that might not necessarily being one thing or another, or not having sort of but walls and boundaries in the same way that right. we like to, and that that kind of sexual experience is also another way of like breaking through that. It's it is probably that, yeah, mm. this idea of like limitlessness. It's interesting you say that. Maybe it is that. Maybe it's the idea of like wanting to be boundaryless. I don't know, and and that that's I don't know. Good sex for me, maybe. That is extraordinary. Thank you. Uh, and the other thing that you're obviously talking about, you go to these um, sex rooms and, mm. and you would just enjoy the company of many men. Mm. Um, and part of that was really interesting because you were listen, looking, reading your book and you're talking about your experience of a dark room mm. and the boundaries that breaks in terms of your own supposition. Because obviously, then if you if you are outside a dark room looking for a sexual mate. Um, you have lots of visual cues, you have lots of your own opinions about who and who you wouldn't consider sleeping with, or well, sleeping with, having sex with. You go into a dark room, a lot of that is taken away, you know, particularly in the darker dark rooms where actually there is virtually no visibility and you're moving around more by touch than vision. Mm. Um, and those situations, I mean, what does that do in terms of your pleasure? I guess like something to do with anonymity perhaps is nice. To sort of feel like a body rather than a person is nice sometimes maybe. Or to feel like, yeah, exactly that. In, in a similar way to what you're saying about drinking piss. I guess in a way it's like, it's breaking down limits in other ways, like visual limits or like, or like personality limits or whatever. I guess I find it moving in a way, which is a strange way to look at it perhaps, but I find it moving that people of non-normative sexual orientation have found so many ways to like receive touch in ways that like, when you tell someone who is a very, of a normative sexual in orientation, they find it out like mind blowing, mm. right? So, and I think like these sexual spaces, like a dark room or like a, a gay sex sauna or whatever, I find that like incredibly powerful and moving. That in a world that's so outcasts you, and especially in the in history, has even more so. In a world that does that, that people can find these amazing ways to connect with people, and they're your own, right? They're like the community's own in a way. That, I find that really moving. I used to live next door to a sauna called Sailors just outside Limehouse, and this sounds really bad, but I used to look out my window some mornings and like just watch who was going into Sailors because it was intriguing to me. And I used to watch this one man every morning take his wife and two children to the bus stop, give them a kiss goodbye, and go into Sailors every morning. And obviously he'd go and have sex. And I remember in my head first of all thinking, like, what a dick, like, what a, what a horrible cheating bastard. But then I also remember at the same time thinking, like, I have no idea what is in his world that means he can't be open about this. And I'm really glad for him that he has even some place to go and express that part of himself. I just find that quite moving. So weirdly, the experience of dark rooms for me is definitely one about dissociation and anonymity. But it's also something I find quite radical and beautiful in a way. There's an amazing female and femme one in South London called sweat before you if you've never been before you have to go and have like a consent workshop before the night so you're taken with one of the leaders and i think there's maybe a group of 10 and it's all about the limit the boundaries and limits that are at the night then i have friends that have been there that have said it's like the most beautiful 
place because it's like there's so much care, so much politeness and consent, but there's also so much like wonderful hot sex happening. And it is, it is, you know, you wonder why these things don't exist more, I guess. You wonder why it's just such a, such a gay thing, like a queer thing. by Christelle's Diary of a Drag Queen, published by Ebree Press, from any good bookstore. Tom is doing their new show at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Christelle Rasmussen presents The Bible 2, plus a cure for shame, violence, betrayal, and athlete's foot, live. It's at the underbelly, The Belly Dancer, at 5.50pm. Dragony Aunts will premiere online on Comedy Central every Friday from July the 5th. Thank you for listening to The Pleasure Podcast. If you enjoyed this, you can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes to give the series a boost and help other people find us. Go on, give us five stars. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. And Sam Smith for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex and of course, pleasure. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.